Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and today is Advent, uh, the first uh, day of Advent for us who are uh, celebrating uh, Christmas. And Advent simply means uh, coming, and so we are waiting for the coming of Christ. It's um, uh, it's my favorite second se- season. My first favorite is Lent, and so uh, we start that today. Uh, today, we have an interesting sermon title. Uh, we're in the Roman series, The Reason for Grace, and the title today is The Art of Exorcism. Uh, I wasn't trying to be extra interesting or scary or anything like that, but as I study the passage, uh, this is what I thought about. Uh, when you fast, when we fast, part of the value of fasting is that very acutely it's able to cut through some of the layers that uh, we have on to protect us from the spiritual elements of life. And so fasting helps us to glimpse to the bottom, to get a sense for what's underneath our needs a little bit. And it's an opportunity for hidden things to manifest. So for example, uh, if I get cranky during my fast... Uh, It doesn't mean that the fasting created the crankiness. It means that the crankiness was there, but it was often masked. And now it has an opportunity to rear its cranky head. And so there's cranky Peter. It's provocation. It's not the invention of something new, but it's the revelation of something that was already present, albeit dormant. Uh, How many of you had family with you uh, during this Thanksgiving week? One of my favorite quotes about families and holidays, the holiday season is, how does your family know just how to push your buttons? And the answer is, because they install them. Over many years, <laughs> they know the exact permutation to push to get you going. And that's part of what this passage is about. It's There's stuff in us and underneath us. And uh, just because your family know the combination to your buttons doesn't mean they invented them. It means that they know they are there and they know how to provoke them, tease those traits and reactions out of you. You know, that regressive behavior you engaged in possibly this week, that's you also, not just the you that is sitting pretty here in this room. And salvation, as we know it, it's not just behavior modification. It's not just outside in and controlling of what we do and think even. Uh, It's not management, but really it's an exorcising of demons, which are integrated and hiding within us. So it's the art of exorcism. We want to answer two questions. What is the nature of sin? And what is the process of change? And basically, the format of this sermon is we're going to go through the text and see what Paul has to say in answer to these two questions. All right? So first, what is the nature of sin? The first thing we read about Sin In verse 9, uh, Paul says, sin became alive. 
I really like this word alive in the Greek. Anazao. It doesn't mean alive as in alive for the first time. But it means to be revived. Think Frankenstein. Right? Uh, it's being revived or it's being uh, caused to live again. And that Greek word just literally means to live again. Um, my first year of... Uh, Marriage was hard, I guess, when I think about it and I look back. I didn't realize it was hard at the time because that's all we knew. Uh, I had just turned 24. Susie was 21 years old when we got married. So she was uh, uh, but a child. And I can't imagine now that I have a double-digit daughter who's sitting right here. I can't imagine uh, her getting married at 21. That's like, you know, when they go away to college they're just a little kid they're 17 18 years old and then like Susie never came home she went to college and then just got married and uh, I can't imagine saying goodbye to my kid when she's 17 that just seems like nonsense Um, so uh, you know thanks to Susie's parents for letting that happen but it was a really hard dog and we had a golden retriever and it was our first dog. We named it after our mentor's last name. So we, his first name was uh, Maynard. And uh, Maynard was a great dog. He was a, a sort of a champion breed. And uh, we had to give him up uh, for various reasons. But we learned later that he was a show dog. And he uh, became a pretty popular celebrity of sorts. But this dog, I just have a, um, a mixed just bag of feelings about this dog because some days during this first year of marriage were really, really hard. It was just hard and I didn't know it. And I just felt a lot of stress and pressure. And um, some of it was financial because I was raising my own funds, doing ministry. Susie was working at a private school job, earning $14,000 a year before taxes. And uh, we were paying a mortgage. It was just a a funny, funny time. And this dog was there just eating our mail. And we had never owned a dog before. It was chewing our shoes up. It was a puppy. It was messing our house. And we didn't know how to do anything. And this dog was just emblematic of how life was for us. It was just making a mess and we didn't know anything about it. It was just something that we were dealing with on a daily basis. Come home hoping the mail hasn't been chewed up and then it will be chewed up. And I would think, why does that happen? I told him to stop. It just, it didn't work. Uh, I had this false belief in the power of the word. Um, And uh, there were two times when I lost it on this dog. And this is just a confession. And there's a couple of vulnerable stories in here for me so take it easy on me don't use it against me later when you think enough time has passed it is funny now it's still not funny to me but uh i remember i was reprimanding this dog and what i had learned was you're supposed to hit the nose like this because it stings them but then it doesn't you know the, the bone on the nose But then it just turned into something where I found myself hitting my dog and it was beyond reprimand. It was just frustration and rage in me. And it was, I didn't know what was happening, but before I knew what was happening, I was hitting my dog. Like it was too much. And I was just taking myself out. And I remember I stopped myself and I stepped back. I hugged my dog and started apologizing. I said, I'm so sorry, Maynard. I'm so sorry. I don't know what just happened. 
Where did that come from? What, what, what happened? Did my dog, is it my dog's fault? What happened is there was stuff in me that got provoked. In other words, there were demons, I'm demons in quotes here, demons in me, and there was a way to tease the demons out. The demons had to manifest. And speaking of demons, you know, one of the questions I used to have was, do demons know the future? Do they, like, know how to set me up because they have knowledge of the future? And the answer is, no, they don't, but they don't have to know because for the most part, they know me. They've been studying me for a long time. They know just how to push my buttons because they helped install them. At least they witnessed the installation. Here's a um, less dark story. (laughs) During this last fast, uh, one day, I think it was like day nine or something, I decided this fast isn't going to beat me. No, I got this. And so I took out my trusty old ab roller, and uh, I did a few of them. And I did it uh, until I started seeing photo negative because I was not getting enough blood. And that's never happened using the ab roller before. And I felt dizzy and nauseated, and I felt that way for a day and a half. My body would not let me forget that I'm not ready to do that right now. And uh, did the abwheel cause that? No. But it did reveal the points where I was weak. And this is what Paul is saying about the nature of sin. That sin became revived. But it's hidden and it's dormant and it's in us. We have to know this about the nature of sin. Your assessment of your sinfulness or sin in you is almost irrelevant. Because your knowledge is so partial and it so uh, lacks the information, the real-time update about where it is and what in what quantity it's there in you. And life throws curveballs at us and situations build over time and there's trauma and there's repetitive stress. And when that happens, demons get teased out and the things that are hidden become revealed. It's the first thing about the nature of sin. Second is that sin is deceptive. Verse 11 says, deceived me. Sin deceived me and through it killed me. And part of how sin operates is that it makes promises that it never can keep. The temptation is for us to believe in the promises of sin. It promises life, but really it facilitates um, death. And according to this passage, and you can't not see this. Now, Paul is being really explicit about this. We alluded to this. We talked about it over the last few weeks. But here, Paul is really spelling out one of the major ways that sin loves to kill us, according to Paul's language, is through rules. Sin loves rules. In verse 8, it says, apart from the law, that's rules, sin is dead. You want a picture of that? You live in the perfect place to know this. What do moss and mold love? Moisture. 
Right? How many of you had to clean moss off your roof? Or off your sidewalk? Or deal with mold in your basement? In your walls? In your vents? Here, there's never a lack of moisture. What's the humidity right now? It's like 73% or something last I checked. It's pretty high. It's winter. In Chicago, where I'm just moved from, the humidity is like 15% because it's cold. Right? But here, it's cold and wet. 24-7, 365, we have moisture. May you never forget, every time you deal with moisture in this area, that moss and mold love moisture the way sin loves rules. Here's a story, and it's your story. I'm going to let you write this story into the future. And I have observed this about myself. And I think this is going to be true for you. Uh, hopefully not this month because you're fasting from criticism and negativity. But here's the story by way of a question. Is it possible, is it possible for you to be a jerk without a rule or some reference to some rule that you yourself believe you yourself keep? That's a question. And you get to write, fill in that story. I went through several stories, and I talked to my wife about this this week. Asked her, is this possible? We walked through several stories, and the answer for us was no. Every time she or I have a jerk moment, there's some rule involved. And it wasn't possible for me to criticize her or her me without some reference to a rule that we believe and we Uh, present as a case for why they ought not to break that rule and they should keep it the way we ourselves have kept it. It's not possible to do it. So another way to say that is when I'm being a jerk, that's letting the, the sin in me, the demon manifest. What feeds this monster are rules. The way Moss loves Moisture. Walk around. You'll see moss. And you will know. That's the nature of sin. It loves rules. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin cannot live without laws. Think about that. Uh, Three kinds of laws that sin in particular love. The first are conditional laws. We love these. We just we run to conditional laws as if they provide life. If this, then that. If I do this, then. If I don't do this, then. That's one form of conditional law. Another form of conditional law is if only. You ever have if only thoughts? If only I could have this. If only I can get that job. If only she would. If only he would. If only they would. We have these false, idealized, conditional dreams in our head. We love these. And they lead to sin. Okay, second form of laws that are popular and uh, amongst our sin nature. They are controlling laws. The don't do's or the do's. Do this or don't do this. We use it to control ourselves and control other people. And our sinful nature loves, thrives 
on controlling laws. And the last one are the certainty ones, the certainty laws. These are the always and never laws. You always do this. We love thinking like that about other people. Oh, she never. You never. We love that. It allows us to justify whatever we say next about that person. Well, she never. And then say whatever you want. Because it's justified. Because she never. Never what? Doesn't matter. It's not about her. It's about me and my demon manifesting. We're not talking about her demons. It's mine. First John chapter 3, verse 19 says this. And this is the judgment. This is Jesus speaking. That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Friends, I want you to know the nature of sin is that it's self-preserving. We love keeping it hidden and we also love being deceived by it because we don't want to expose the darkness that's in us. We're in cahoots with the darkness. We resist change. We mask it as we've been talking about with addictions by focusing on other people. We surround ourselves with non-catalytic people. We play the victim-hero dichotomy card. We justify the inertia in our lives. Who am I describing? All of us. We love sin. I love sin. This is the nature of sin. To be hidden and deceptive. And we cooperate with it. And I'm telling you, we need a power to exercise these demons in our lives. It's not something that we do by ourselves. It's not something we can get a handle on and we can just try harder. But it really does take something we call salvation. We need help beyond ourselves for Sin. And what is the process of this help, this process of change? This passage gives us two ways that we are able to uh, understand how change happens. The first is found in verse 7. Paul begins this passage by asking the question, what shall we say? What shall we say? And then verse 12, he says, so then... The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is Paul answering his first question that he asked in verse 7. He answers in verse 12. And this word is the oft uh, used in church word, the word confess. One of the first ways that we change is through confessing. It's not by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying to muscle our way through change, but it's simply creating an opportunity for God to do it for us. And our part is to just say with God. That's what the word confess means. It means to say with. Confess. Fess means to say. Con means with. With say. Say with God. See with God. Agree with God. What's God's perspective? On this situation, what do you have to say? Paul says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why is verse 12 an important part of the answer to the question Paul asks in verse 7? What shall we say? What shall we say? And Paul says, agree with God. So think about this. Here we are caught in this trap 
where we are nurturing and feeding our sinful nature with the very laws that we initially thought were going to save us. Right? And then the tempting thing, and this is the way we live life, is we play the victim card now and say, it's not my fault. Right? It's the law. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. The law is good. It's from God. And so now we are agreeing with God. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And if we say that, what's left? If there is evil manifesting and we don't get to blame the law anymore, then who's at fault? Well, I am. That means it wasn't that you caused it. It means that you helped provoke something that was already in me. Well, what was in me? The demon, the evil, the sin. And I get to say that now. The law is good. God, I agree with you. The law is good. So help me. Let me call it what it is. Let me call it what you would call it, which is sin. There is sin in me, and I am deceived. And I have believed in the promises of sin. I believe that if I did this or didn't do that, or she always or she never, I believed in all these ways of living my life. It doesn't work because I need help. Now I'm able to say that. Okay, so that's the first. The second step of change is what I would call own it. So first is say it. Second is own it. Verse 13 says this. Sin would become utterly sinful. So there is sin in me. I am deceived about the nature of sin. It's hidden and it's deceptive. It's camouflaged, integrated into who I am. Right? But now I'm able to say it, confess with God, say, no, God, the law is good. Simply, there is something in me and it's being provoked, it's manifesting. Now it's made visible. I need help because sin, this sin that's in me, it's not just like kind of bad. It's not just a friend sometimes. It's never a friend. It's my enemy and it hates my soul and it's seeking to kill me. That's Paul's language. It's seeking to destroy my life. And so we are owning the fact that sin is utterly sinful. We're naming it for what it is. Now we're allowing the demon to fully manifest. Jesus, whenever he exercised demons, he said, what is your name? Who are you? And he called it out by name. And that's what this is. Here's a story that uh, is a little bit Uh, vulnerable for me to tell because it's still ongoing in my life it's not something that i once was blind now i'm now i see kind of story uh when i first got married the hardest thing for Susie, more than any of the problems that we had was my inability to solve problems so i would say that's true for all of us we all have problems but as soon as we're able to solve the problems we don't have problems anymore right the way we know this is you had problems when you were five years old that are no longer problems for you. You don't think about tying your shoes as a problem to be solved once a day. No, it's, it's a non-issue. You don't think, you just tie your shoes. But at some point, it was a very frustrating area in your life where you needed outside intervention so that you won't die because you would trip and get hurt. Right? And so it actually was a problem at some point. 
Now, no longer. <clears throat> so when I first got married, I did not know how to solve problems because what I brought to the table as my go-to tool <clears throat> for solving problems was frustration and anger and a condemning tone. Like that's how I attacked problems. Life would be like, Peter, here you go, a problem. And I would be like, rah! It's still here, rah, more rah! And just be mad at it and mad at you and mad at everybody and just, just, did not know how to solve that one. And I realized over time that my greatest problem weren't problems. Problems come and go. But it was my inability to solve problems. That was my biggest problem. And so it was this awful, condemning tone that I brought to the table all the time. It's just made people just feel worthless all around me on a regular basis. And the primary recipient of my gift to the world was uh, Susie. It was hard first year, but what really made it hard was this guy. By this guy, I mean this, this tone. Right? And being able to name that as sinful. Because I so wanted to say, no, the situation totally calls for that tone. Like the, the, the justice instinct of the world that's just in all of us demands that tone be used. That's what I wanted to say. That was my lack of honesty. Don't you feel like that when you're upset? It's like somebody, you know, I've seen lots of, I've been in cars with lots of you. Most of you have problems driving. Like you are a nice person like this, but when you're behind the wheel, you're a jerk. And you treat them the way no human being should be treated. I don't know why. I do the same thing. We are jerks. I mean, talk about provocation, right? Our vehicles really do that. And that's evil. That's bad. That ought not to be, my friends. Own it. Call it what it is. It's your problem, not theirs. So in conclusion, um, a trial has two purposes. When, when hard things happen, when your sin is manifesting, when life is throwing curveballs at you and there's provocation and rules coming out of your mouth to justify your sinful nature, uh, there's two responses that, uh, that God has as a way to redeem all of that. One is to reveal. Do you know that's what a trial or a test does? It reveals what's really there, like a fast. It gives you a peek to the bottom. Oh, that's why when I stir the pot, that stuff comes up. Because it was there to begin with. Okay, that's what a test does. The second thing a test or a trial does is it helps to shape you and form you. And so each time you have a difficult situation in your life, a problem that threatens to provoke the demons out of you, it's an opportunity for formation. Your response to that affects future responses. Arr, that tone helps form the next response to a problem. 
And if I go, ah, and then, hmm, now each time it gets a little better. And that demon is teased out and it's exorcised. And Susie would tell you, for the most part, it's gone, my tone. No longer in my tool bag. I have to now go to the garage and dig through the box of unused tools and I have to pull it. I have to go through a lot of effort to call upon that tool now. And that's a good thing. It's not in me anymore. It's out there. Still accessible at times. So two question ways to think about revelation and formation is what are the depths of my depravity? That's a theological word. What are the depths of my depravity? And what are the heights of my beauty? God sees the depths of our depravity and also the heights of our beauty. So um, another way to say this is that sin is evil and God is good. And it's really important to say both things because when bad things happen and God uses them, that doesn't mean those bad things are good. Sin is never good. There's a lot of evil in us and in this world that's manifesting through us. And it's all bad. But our God is good. And he is in the business of redeeming us. Amen?